This week's episode is brought to you by AG3D Printing, a place to bring your ideas into reality. We're a 3D printing service, and you can check us out at ag3d-printing.com and on Instagram at ag3d printing. And you can help support the podcast by using our Amazon links on the page and on this episode and every episode, uh, todayinspace.net. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Today in Space. It is October 24th, and uh, man, October is almost over. This is fucking crazy. Um, yeah, I can't believe that. We have one more week. We'll make it. Yeah, I guess our next, the last episode of October will be Halloween. So that'll be fun. Um, maybe I'll find some cool space stuff from Halloween. Who knows? Uh, but this week we've got a shitload of things to cover. A lot of things in orbital news this week because there was a lot of things in orbit, uh, both in Earth, on Earth, around Earth. And around Mars. So we're going to get into that and start covering all the events from this week that have happened in space. In orbital news, we jump over to the Balkan Cosmodrome over in Kazakhstan earlier this week on Wednesday. Uh, early morning, as far as the East Coast is concerned, uh, 4.05, uh, where three astronauts... Uh, Shane Kimbrough of NASA and cosmonauts Sergei Ryzakov and Andrei Borisenko of the Russian space agency Roscosmos uh, launched towards the International Space Station uh, as they are part of Expedition 49S. And so they will be joining the station's crew to complement them back up to six. The three astronauts that are on board that uh, the three on Expedition 49S met were uh, Expedition 49 Commander Antonoli Ivanishin of Roscosmos, Flight Engineer Kate Rubens of NASA, and Takuya Onishi of Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. And that whole crew will spend a little over four months conducting more than 250 science investigations in the fields of biology, earth science, human research, physical sciences, and technology development. Uh, the uh, Kimbrough, Rezikov, and Borisenko will remain on the station until late February, and Rubens, Ivanishin, and Onishi will return to Earth on October 30th. So we will cover their landing before the next episode. Um, the Exp- Expedition 49 crew uh, will also be dealing with a lot of deliveries to the space station. You know, the Orbital ATK Cygnus craft, which actually uh, we'll be covering later in this episode, um, because of its later departure and uh, it had its few hiccups trying to get launched, um, it actually, 
there was actually planning that had to be done to make sure that it didn't interfere with this launch. And, uh, you know, if, if you might be thinking about it, well, how did that one get in the way of another launch that happened later? Well, you know, it's all about orbits and, you know, what is your velocity going into an orbit? Then how long does it take you to get in orbit to match the International Space Station? And that's where the problem arose, where the launch from the Cosmodrome was clearly a much more direct route because you don't want the humans uh, being uh, in orbit too long. Um, you know, they, they got to they gotta get out and piss, uh, never mind eat. So you don't want them hanging around there too long. Um, but also, you know, like a resupply craft like the Cygnus uh, can get to the space station in however amount of time they can get there. And because they launched on the back end of the launch window, uh, clearly it affected their arrival time to the National Space Station. Um, now, the Cygnus spacecraft, as we covered last time, um, it arrived uh, the space station uh, today, and oh, I'm sorry, Sunday, I'm recording this on Sunday, uh, on October 23rd, and it arrived with over 5,100 pounds of science and research equipment. And, well, I guess now we're going into Cygnus as it is. Um, before we do that, congratulations to um, the astronauts and cosmonauts that launched on Expedition 49S. Uh, congratulations for a successful mission um, start. And you've made it to the National Space Station. And uh, I, I wish you luck on your... Uh, your mission here through February. And let's move on to Cygnus. So just to recap on Cygnus, it launched on Monday, October 17th, and only just docked to the space station at 10.53 a.m. on October 23rd, yesterday, if you're listening to this on Monday morning. So uh, that's a quite a long time in orbit on its way to uh, approaching the International Space Station, but you're better off safe than sorry when, um, you know, dealing with a crew and, you know, I'm sure they timed that so that there was enough time for the Expedition 49S crew to get on board, to dock, and, and just make sure all the procedures were safe. Um, mainly because if there's only three members on board the ISS and they're being used to deal with the expedition crew coming in on the Soyuz craft, the MS-02, then there was no one to deal with the Cygnus craft, Cygnus-5, when it came back. So, obviously, that's no good. Um, so, the timing worked out well, uh, and the Cygnus craft brought in approximately 5,000 pounds of science investigations, food, and supplies, and it was docked to the Unity module of the International Space Station. Um, and actually, at this moment, I'm actually looking at a graphic from uh, blogs.nasa.gov, the space station um, blog, and currently, there are five spacecraft attached to the International Space Station, if you include BEAM, which is the inflatable, um, uh, the inflatable module that's being tested uh, for a long time to see if inflatable modules can actually be used, if they can... Uh, successfully uh, be a new tool to be used in space. Uh, so if you include that, that's five. So the Soyuz MS-02, 
MSO2 that just arrived with Expedition 49S, Progress 64, and Cygnus 5. So Cygnus 5, uh, if we look at the science... Um, the science experiments that are on board. Um, there's a, another fire in space uh, science experiment that's going on. You know, last time, I believe Orbital ATK was up there with the Cygnus craft. They essentially lit a fire while the Cygnus craft was going back to Earth to see how fires happen in space because that's one of the worst nightmares in space travel is something lighting on fire because it's just going to keep going. There's nothing to put it out. And the only way to possibly extinguish that flame would be eliminating oxygen, which of course you can't get any more of. So just a nightmare as far as it's concerned. And an enclosed space is never a good thing for fire. So uh, we should have a fire protection engineer on here so we can talk more about that and what that might include uh we'll have to i'll have to reach out to my my scientifically uh minded friends hopefully we'll find some fpes out there but uh going back to it um just in case anyone's new to the sickness spacecraft uh the sickness is a resupply capsule but it's unlike the dragon and it's unlike the soyuz where they are uh not reusable spacecraft. They're actually specifically intended to go back on a destructive course where they go into the atmosphere and burn up all the stuff that they bring back, which are, you know, things that unwantables, you know, uh, you know, space deposits or crap. Um, and, and anything else that you know, is taking up space on the station. So, um, it is good because, you know, uh, there's something like 3,700 pounds of things that are, uh, waste essentially from the space station that gets slowly burned as the Cygnus spacecraft goes into orbit on a destructive path. And then if I remember correctly, it's, it ends up crashing into point Nemo, which is uh, this area in the Pacific where all spacecraft go to die. We actually did a, <laughs> I actually did a, um, a lightning round on SoundCloud. You can actually check that out. Uh, that was fun. I did a, uh, that was fun putting together the music for that and uh, and doing a, an instrumental for that. So check that out if you have a chance. If you haven't heard it already, but Point Numo, interesting thing. I mean, literally, that's where we aim. It's this giant. It's a. It's a big target is this big area in the Pacific where we literally just toss spacecraft and uh, it's, they actually send out warnings to any fishermen or, you know, any kind of cargo that are out there to say, Hey, don't, <laughs> don't be traveling here. There's going to be space debris coming down. So it uh, just makes you think about, uh, you know, all the efforts that go into uh, sending things to and back from space. Um, you know, we're not just doing it blindly. You know, there is actually people looking out for this kind of stuff. So that's cool. But going back to the science that's on board, um, there's also a few other things uh, like this lighting effects, um, which, you know, if you've been online or if you have a cell phone, you're probably very familiar with, you know, how are, you know, the blue lights or, you know, lights when you're sleeping, you know, does that affect your circadian rhythms and, and does it affect what 
you know, does that affect you as a person? So what they're going to be doing is they're going to be experimenting with astronauts doing multiple cycles of light and dark every 24 hours, uh, which along with night shifts and the stresses of spaceflight could affect their sleep quality and quantity. So since poor sleep impairs alertness, reaction time, and cognition, and can increase the risk of accidents, it's clearly something we should look into, especially looking into something in space, because, I mean, if we find out that it affects us up there, then there's going to have to be some adjustments done uh, with our life in space, you know, because if we need less light, then we're going to need to make sure that either we're sleeping in an area that has no light at all, or we may have to even go as far as making sure that some of these panels actually have the option to turn the lights off in the panels. But I, my first thought is that may not actually be a good thing because uh, <laughs> then you wouldn't be able to find your way around. But because uh, if you want to go about dark, uh, go to space. I don't even want to imagine what that darkness is. Like, I mean, even even on Earth, like, you know, we don't really have darkness down here uh, unless you're like in a, a canyon or something like that and you can't see the sky or you're in, you know, a, a forest where there's, you can't see the sky. Like even on a, a, a dark night, there's still some light out there. Even when the moon, you know, even in a new moon, there's still light. So it's not complete darkness. Um, but that's going to be a very interesting uh, scientific experiment to follow. So we'll uh, hopefully follow that up at some point here. And uh, the other experiments on board are everywhere, which uh, has the potential for use in science experiments, biomedical support, and technical dem- technology demonstrations, um, where a user-friendly tablet app provides astronauts with a new and faster way to collect a, vari- a wide variety of personal data. Uh, and it tests the use of this French-designed technology to record and transmit data on nutrition, sleep, exercise, and medications. So it looks like, um, you know, the next level for uh, astronauts, you know, we have, you know, everyone has their own thing, whether it's the uh, Fitbit or something like that. This looks like the uh, the first attempt at an astronaut Fitbit. So uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, the other experiment is the fast neutron spectrometer. Uh, so outside the Earth's magnetic field, astronauts are exposed to space radiation, and that can affect things like their immune response. It obviously has a cancer risk, and it can also interfere with the electronics on board. And this fast neutron spectrometer investigation is going to help scientists understand high-energy neutrons, uh, part of the radiation exposure experienced by crews during spaceflight. And it's going to study a new technique to measure electrically neutral neutron particles. Uh, and as this uh, NASA article says, uh, these part- particular particles, a lot of particles, uh, these particular particles pass through most measuring systems undetected. But the FNS uses a gate and capture technique that slows down neutrons and capture them in a special glass fibers uh, loaded with lithium. Uh, that process produces a unique flash of light, which custom electronics in the FNS recognize and analyze to determine radiation level. 
Uh, this technology is less susceptible to false triggers from the other forms of radiation and can significantly improve reliable identification of neurons in the mixed radiation field found in deep space. Uh, this improved measurement will help protect crews on future exploration missions. And uh, it follows up here by saying, because it experiences radiation from a variety of sources, the space station provides an ideal environment for evaluating the FNS. So uh, a good long-term experiment here, something that will definitely come in handy as we send human beings farther and longer into space. So that's good. It, it sounds like a more robust technology, and they're testing out... Uh, a different technique, you know, capturing them in a, a, a glass fiber coated in lithium. I mean, that's wild. So it's almost like a, it's almost like a, like electrically conductive uh, or inductive. I'm not sure what the, it's, it's, it's like insulation that catches these, uh, these neutrons. Uh, it, just wild. So a uh, little, <laughs> little crazy experiment uh, on the Cygnus spacecraft, but it got there successfully. So, you know, these rounds of experiments are going to uh, have a chance to continue. So congratulations to Cygnus for getting these uh, amazing experiments on board. And uh, the Cygnus spacecraft will stay onto the International Space Station for more than a month. And in that time, it'll be packed up with, you know, the 3,700 pounds or so of waste and other materials that we will then burn on its way down to space, not before uh, starting that fire in space experiment, where they will actually start a controlled fire on the Cygnus spacecraft, because what better way to start a fire than on a spacecraft that's going to burn up anyways. So uh, we'll look forward to see what happens there. Now, let's take a break from Orbital News before we get to ExoMars, and let's do a 3D printing update. So, on this week's 3D printing update, I wanted to catch you guys up on what's been going over here with AG3D. Uh, we've been busy. We've been building up our capabilities. You know, there's a lot to learn with 3D printing, you know, as far as different techniques and what you can do, and it, that's really what it's about. It's It's building your skills so that you can do more with what you have. Uh, and if you check out AG3D Printing's uh, projects page, um, I actually started writing a blog on AG3D about the different projects I'm doing. And the first one I just put up was this week, I think it was Thursday morning or Wednesday night, one or the other. And it was the dual ventilation system that uh, I had to do for my 3D printer box. So just to give you the quick thing, not to ruin the, the blog post, but because uh, I definitely want you to go check it out and read it and let me know what you guys think because um, I want it to be understandable. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, when you're in the middle of doing it, you know, it makes sense to you, but I want to make sure that people that aren't in 3D printing, it makes sense. So if you're not in 3D printing or you just want to learn more about it, check it out and let me know what you think. I, I really would love your feedback on it. But so the project was, I have a ventilation system, you know, because there's plastic particle emissions with 3D printing, which are little particles of plastic that are emitted when you melt up plastic, um, which is why you want to do it in open ventilation, open space, where there's some kind of ventilation. And, 
you know, when you're printing inside, when you're starting small, you know, and you want to print things like ABS, you know, a stronger plastic, you have to figure out a way to print inside without giving yourself potentially cancer or just, just inhaling plastic particles, which can't be good for you. Okay. So it's not good for the ocean. So it's definitely not good for your lungs. So I have this box that's made of wood and glass, and I had a single fan in there that was taking the air out um, and, you know, taking the plastic particles out through a vent that I had put a hole in my wall and <laughs> I put a vent system in and it's been working great. But I noticed that when I do really long prints, I needed more. So I made this uh, little mount for, well, it's not little, it's pretty big. Uh, it's the biggest thing I've ever 3D printed. And uh, I had to do a whole bunch of techniques like using acetone to bond and stuff like that. So go check it out. Like it's crazy the different things you can do. And really, if you just take some time and you search online, um, you you learn a whole, there's so many people out there doing all these amazing things. And so that's what I want to start documenting are these projects that I'm going to start doing and I'm going to share with you guys. So uh, make sure to go check that out. It's, uh, I'm going to try and do it as often as I can, but you know, sign up for that blog or you'll hear it on a 3D printing update, whether I do a new update. So it'll be whenever I get to a new project. Um, so what else? What else? Uh, the other big thing is, uh, another big thing with 3D printing is the combination of hardware and software. You know, the 3D printer, when it works, it works. Um, you know, you don't have to worry too much about hardware other than maybe greasing some bearings after a long time or cleaning out your uh, nozzle so that it doesn't get clogged, things like that. Once you understand that, you don't have to worry about your hardware anymore. The big issue and where a lot of 3D printing is going to expand in the next few years is in the software. You know, how um, the model gets sliced and how it tells the 3D printer through G-code how to move and extrude the plastic and, you know, uh, speeds, layers, all those things, everything is about the G-code. So, uh, software and figuring out how to tweak it to make it the best thing you can. That's where it's all about. So um, I've been using a bunch of different software and trying to figure out the best way for my printer to work. So that, that's been a big thing for me. You know, I use, I have the XYZ Printing's DaVinci Pro. Uh, they have a software, but it hasn't been working fantastic for me. So I reached out to a company I use, Simplify 3D, and we've been working on figuring out how to get that software to work on my printer. And after a few emails back and forth, and I did a few test prints, we actually got it to work. So now uh, I'm able, I have a profile that I can now use to print. And now I'm kind of testing a bunch of different prints to see, okay, did I run into an issue? And if I do, I'm going to relay that back to the company. So that's the kind of cool, like front end stuff that's going on with 3D printing is, you know, these new companies, they, you know, if there's printers no one's used before, they want to, they want to know how to do it. So since I, I use their stuff and I love their software, they even said, reach out to us if you, if you want to get your printer up and running. And it was easy as anything. You know, they, they did a lot of the work. Really, I was just the, um, I was a guy running the test. You know, so for me, that's no problem because then I get to use their software. Um, so it was a nice win-win. Thank you to Simplify 3D for uh, working with me back and forth on that. Uh, it's, it's working really well right now. And uh, I, I can't, could be happier. So we'll see if I uh, get anything that goes wrong. So that's where it gets exciting. Um, luckily, no problems yet. Uh, what else? I had another thing. 
that I wanted to share, um, just haven't gotten to it yet. And I wanted to really mull over it a little bit. It's a, it's another concept as, as I, I do on the show a lot, which is kind of share my thoughts with you guys and my thought process. So I wanted to share something that, uh, I talked to a lot of people who don't do 3d printing and, you know, one of the big questions is, okay, well, you already have one printer. Why do you need another printer? Because of course I'm a crazy fucker and I am always looking to get more, but for, for reasonable reasons. And, you know, luckily I have people in my life that when I have crazy ideas, they challenge me on it, which forces me to then sit back and say, okay, yeah, why do I need another printer? And I came up with the perfect answer. So take that. No, but really, I mean, there is a logic to it. And there's a reason why there's things called print farms. You know, any uh, 3D printing organization or a company that uses 3D printing, you're not going to see just one printer. Rarely will you ever see that. You're actually going to see something called a print farm, which is essentially a whole line of printers running at the same time. So, you know, if you're a young startup trying to use 3D printing, or if you're a person who has 3D printers or wants to use them, why would you need more than one? And, um, you know, it comes down to how quickly can you push things out? So think about it. When you're, when you're printing something, on average here, I run prints six to 10 hours long. So if I have a bunch of things that need to get done, you know, if I have a project that I want to get done quickly, uh, if I only have one printer, I need to be... I need to set that first print up, wait the six to 10 hours till it finishes, and then set up another print. So then let's just say there's two parts. Those two parts are going to take me 12 to 20 hours to finish. But if I had two printers, those two parts will then take me six to 10 hours because they're running at the same time. So a print farm is really valuable in 3D printing if you need if you want to push product out faster, if you want to get ideas out faster, because then you have machines running at the same time. And then the amount of time you're spending on that product is so much less. It drops uh, pretty much. So if you're printing the same part, right, let's, uh, let's just say you're printing um, four parts, right? And you can only print one at a time on each printer. Then you're either going to, you know, you can drop that by a factor of four, Basically, the time it's going to take you to print one part by having four printers. And I hope I hope that makes sense. I, I don't want to kid you guys over the head with it <laughs> to death, but I think you get the idea. So, you know, if if you have stuff that you're pushing out and you want to make sure that you get products out fast, so you can then take in more volume of product and business, then a print farm is where you need to go. You know, it's it's the way to uh, make sure that that you're. You're, you're getting enough business quickly. And, so, you know, the other argument I heard is, well, okay, why then, you know, well, isn't that expensive? Well, the good thing is that 3D printers have come down in price, especially desktop 3D printers, consumer 3D printers have come down. You know, if you're looking for a decent 3D printer that you're going to be able to do kind of business with, you're looking at about $1,000 per printer. That's not 100% true, but that's that's about the number you're looking at. So, you know, when you get a 3D printer, one of the things you're going to have to do is once you buy that printer, you're going to have to get enough work to then pay off that 3D printer, right? Because you got to you got to get back to zero to then make profit, right? So, if you have enough work, then you know, $4,000 as far as technology costs for a business, that is not a lot of money. 
when you consider manufacturing, you know, with manufacturing, if you are going to get a mill, for instance, you're going to pay a lot more money, even with an old one. I mean, a single mill, um, an old mill that still works, but it's like manual. You don't have any digital output. You can't really do any um, automated processes on it. I would think it's going to run you around five grand. And then if you want to get something that's going to give you high-end capabilities, you know, a milling center is going to cost you fifteen and twenty thousand dollars. So if you compare the cost of those kind of things to something that a regular person, an average person, just an uh, an up and coming engineer or an artist who has a product they want to sell, you know, a designer, then that is a very low cost option for anybody to get into the business. Uh, even a student, you know, if they have. Uh, I, probably wouldn't recommend buying more than one printer as a student, but <laughs> unless you have a use for it, you know, the big thing, then, then the double-edged sword is, do you have enough work to keep those printers running? Because in manufacturing, anytime you're running anything, you need to make sure that you have enough work to keep those things running essentially 24-7. You know, you're going to need people to run them, but if you can keep that thing running 24-7, then you're optimizing that machine and you're getting the most out of those machines. And that's exactly what a 3D printer is. It's a machine. So, it, it, you know, there's different ways to optimize it. So uh, I just want to introduce the idea of a print farm because that's another way for you to optimize your 3D printing abilities and get things done and take away that what seems to be the biggest argument against 3D printing, which is time you know, how long it takes, you know, it takes so long for these printers to get done. A print farm is a great way for you to reduce that time even more so that you can get ideas from start to finish even quicker. And that's exactly what 3D printing uh, and AG 3D printing hopes to offer you. That's right. We're jumping, sliding right into the advertisement here. So thank you for listening to the 3D printing update. Um, ag3d-printing.com for all of your 3D printing services. You know, we want to help bring your ideas into reality. So check us out uh, at our website or at Instagram at ag3dprinting and check out our blog, our first blog. Uh, It was acetone, ABS, and assemblies um, where I go over that whole dual ventilation system project, uh, which was a lot of fun and uh, I'm really glad I got it finished. And uh, got into writing, which has always been for me because I went to an engineering school to avoid it and then realized, oh, my God, it's all writing. Um, the irony. Um, so anyways, <laughs> AG 3D printing, uh, if you know, if you've got school projects, we've already had a few projects this year, the beginning of the school year. Um, if you're in college and your school has 3D printers, um, do not wait till last minute to get that printer on because those printers get filled up really fast. But if you do get caught in that situation where the whole 3D printing lab is caught up and there's no way you can get it done, come find us at AG3D Printing. We will get that product, uh, whatever project, model, whatever you're doing in college that you need to get done before finals, hit us up. We will help you out. Um, you know, uh, as far as, you know, any Massachusetts based colleges, uh, we can definitely help you out and get it to you as fast as possible. If you're out of the state, um, 
please make sure to do it ahead of time if you can, because shipping and handling and all that stuff is a nightmare. So remember, ag3d-printing.com, Instagram at ag3dprinting, and this has been the 3D Printing Update. All right, to close out the show and orbital news for this week, uh, we're going to talk about ExoMars, the ExoMars mission, which was a European Space Agency mission that launched a few years ago. Um, Actually, I'm not 100% sure on when it launched. Let's look it up, folks. ExoMars launch. Um, But essentially, the... ExoMars mission is a combination of a an orbiter and a lander with a rover, essentially. So the idea was to apologize. Uh, the idea was to send the Trace Gas orbiter to Mars, which is a uh, telecommunications orbiter and atmospheric gas analyzer, which would then Um, orbit the planet to find these rare gases that might be in the atmosphere, one of which might be the the sources of methane on Mars. Because if you remember, um, not too long ago, the Curiosity rover actually sniffed um, some methane uh, that was nearby, which methane is very uh, exciting because that could mean the presence of life. So... Uh, to have an orbiter that has the ability to then trace where these sources might be helps us narrow down that area a little bit better. Um, because although Curiosity was able to detect it, um, that doesn't mean we actually know where it was coming from. And if you know anything about gases, you know that it could have trailed from somewhere else. So, you know, and given the fact that Mars's atmosphere is 1% the density of Earth's, it, you you never know where that could have come from, you know. So um, the trace gas orbiter would be a, a great addition to the science going on at Mars. Uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter being there right now, um, a great, Im- an, an amazing imaging tool for Mars. Uh, and the other half of the ExoMars mission, which launched uh, on March 14th of 2016, so I am completely wrong on years ago, it was months ago. So the mission was on its way to Mars with this orbiter and the lander, the Sherapelli EDM lander, which um, was going to land a rover, but then also test out different... uh, re-end well entry procedures for landing on mars because we haven't done it that often and you know we're entering at a uh, very large speed uh into the atmosphere which is going to create heat and pressure and plasma and all those things when you're going into a landing are incredibly important to figure out you know, later down the road. I mean, you know, with the Curiosity rover, they did something that's never been done and, and will be very hard to duplicate, which, you know, they 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 brought this thing in, brought it to the atmosphere, used rogue shoots to slow it down, and then this space crane started up, kicked off its boosters, and then basically, essentially hovered the Curiosity rover 
above the ground. Actually, they got it so well that it actually went up a little bit. It actually came up off the ground a little bit. So they actually overestimated it. And they ended up dropping the Curiosity rover from a crane. Just like the friggin' um, the Hobgoblin in Spider-Man. It looks like this same exact thing that he rides. And the Green Goblin, I'm sorry, the Hobgoblin was later. The Green Goblin, um, same same glider technique. And then it, as soon as it dropped the Curiosity rover, it flew off. But the um, the Shirapelli EDM lander essentially looked kind of like a space capsule. Um, you know, kind of like uh, the Apollo capsule looked like. Uh, you know, with a heat shield on the bottom, came in butt first, and to take all the heat and pressure away. And so then the bottom heat shield that was taking all that heat releases off and then, uh, drogue chutes and parachutes, uh, are released. And then eventually the, uh, Shirapelli comes out, which instead of being a complete, uh, instead of like curiosity where it was a sky crane booster with, the Curiosity Rover, Shirapelli was one thing. Um, it was one unit, um, one EDM lander that would start boosters to slow itself down to the point where it could get right, you know, slow enough above the ground to then free fall to a landing. So on October 19th, they had a, the, the ESA had a live uh, broadcast. I had a chance to actually watch it and follow and, uh, the, you know, a few, uh, a little bit before they entered the atmosphere and got close, the two separated. Um, and this was a critical moment because, uh, Shirapelli had to turn on and say, Hey, I'm good. Uh, you know, here I am. And, you know, start up the procedures. And uh, I believe the same happened with the orbiter and, so the orbiter went on its way and made its move to enter into a highly elliptical orbit around Mars as it's going to then afterwards uh, make its way into a, a, an orbit around Mars where it can actually start doing science. And um, uh, so the orbiter was the first one that they were expecting communications from. It was the first of the events to start. So the orbiter started and then... Um, made its way into orbit, not before sending some kind of information uh, back towards Earth. Um, and then, as it was making its way around the planet, which was then dead zone as far as communications goes, so um, the orbiter was going around, and it wasn't until we heard from it back again that it actually survived. So the orbiter, um, from what we can tell now is in great shape. It entered the orbit the way it was supposed to. And, uh, so that, that's great. The trace gas orbiter, tremendous shape. The Shirapelli EDM lander, um, they heard from it as it was on its descent. Um, I don't remember the exact, uh, procedure how it happened but essentially it was going through its thing where you know uh it took the atmospheric pressure and heat from the heat shield released the parachutes deployed and then uh when they were supposed to release it was either before or afterwards they lost communication with shirapelli 
So the first broadcast, the Shear Perry Lander was a no-show. We didn't have any communications with it. And, you know, um, worst case scenarios, obviously, it ended up like Beagle 2, where uh, we didn't hear from it. And we would only then later on uh, find out from, you know, uh, some other orbiter imaging it. But um, the hope was that we would actually hear back from it. You know, there was still a chance. You know, maybe, you know, it's also, it's also not very difficult sometimes to uh, transfer that information, you know, get it to pick up. Because remember, you know, you're relaying information from essentially a pinpoint, and that pinpoint is supposed to relay itself back to Earth, while both of those things are spinning, both Mars and Earth are spinning, which means you need something, you know, you need to make sure that however you're relaying that information from Mars is directing itself towards Earth. And then at the same time, we're using these ground-based satellites on Earth that are in these positions specifically so that while the Earth is rotating, it can, you know, it it can be used to uh, communicate and pick up while it's in rotation. So, I mean, it's just, just the, the the sheer physics of the whole thing is just quite fucking mad, to tell you the truth. And it's I saw a graphic on it online that just kind of blew my mind. It was just like, oh, my God, like, how crazy are we that we're, we're trying to fucking communicate with this thing? No wonder we can't pick it up. It's amazing we do pick it up in the first place. Because um, if, you, if you take into the fact, like, if you drew, like, a trail of how that beam of of communication from Mars is supposed to hit Earth. It's like this giant spiral, and then it's supposed to pick it up on on one of the spiral. It's just, it's crazy. It, it really is. So, you know, the hope was, okay, you know, maybe we'll find out what happened later. Um, now, if you're used to SpaceX and NASA's, um, you know, presentations, uh, studio presentations and uh just just the way they do their production i guess is what i'm trying to say um the esas was very different uh it was almost set up like a talk show they had couches there um they had a host um who was uh explaining things they had a few things set up kind of like how spacex and nasa do um where you know she would introduce things and they were kind of, it almost seemed to me, this is my opinion, but it seemed to me like they were covering time, which obviously you have to in a live event because things aren't going right. <laughs> They're not going according to plan. Um, but it was, it was, it was strange. It was strange, especially since before we even got an answer to what happened to Sherry Pelly on the first broadcast, they just pretty much said, and this is it for today's, for this broadcast, which of course is a very strange way to end a broadcast and leave people, um, without an answer. But luckily they had multiple scheduled broadcasts. So it wasn't, they were just, they weren't just leaving us high and dry. We were going to find out eventually, but it's, there could have been a better segue. Um, but regardless, the second broadcast came back and still, um, you know, they explained the science behind it, you know, uh, what could be the case. Um, but we still hadn't heard from the orbiter still. So in the second broadcast, um, they actually showed how they see the telecommunications, which is basically, it it almost looks like an EKG where you see kind of, uh, someone's heartbeat. Um, but essentially there's a certain pattern that you want to get that 
shows you that the orbiter is actually communicating with you, and that uh, pattern shows you that it's in the correct orbit, um, or the, the orbit that they're looking for. Obviously, it would take multiple uh, relays of information to know the exact orbit it's in, but that initial f- imprint was great. It, it's going good. So um, a second broadcast, it was great news. It was, okay, half of the mission is still good. You know, the trace gas orbiter is still uh, alive. It's doing well, and it's where it's supposed to be. Um, but by the end of the broadcast, uh, we still had no word from Shirapelli. So um, the news was a, a little bit gloomy, but, um, you know, still hopeful that maybe, you know, there's been a bunch of times where just communication arrays get destroyed on the way in or, you know, something gets unplugged or, or the dust. I mean, this time on Mars is is historically around the time, what I read online the other week, um, these dust storms that happen on Mars uh, can actually cover up the entire planet. Uh, the last time it happened was 2001, where essentially the entire planet was covered in dust. It looked like a um, like an opaque orange. Just you know, you couldn't see the surface. Um, you know, and the, even though you know the atmosphere of Mars is only one percent dense as only one percent as dense as Earth's. Um, there can still be a snowball effect where some of the particles, because there's very fine particles on the surface of Mars, so if the winds do pick up and then start snowballing, um, those small particles will then pick up other small particles that are on the surface. And if it's if the conditions are right, you could have the entire planet covered in dust. So they were also experiencing that. They, you know, this is the dust season, if you will. So um, we were dealing with all these things. Um, but really what we needed to do was either wait for the trace gas orbiter to get its way up so that it can then, uh, take information and communicate. Um, there was also information that was relayed from that trace gas orbiter of the lander, um, Shirapelli EDM lander as it was going down. It was actually observing it. Um, so it sent information back to the engineers to see, okay, what, did seem to happen. They were inconclusive. So we had to wait then for the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to go by and image the area where Shirapelli was supposed to have landed. And uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter did in fact take images of that area. And unfortunately, it looks like the um, ExoMars Shirapelli EDM lander ended up just as poorly as the Beagle 2 mission, where uh, if you look at the image, uh, there is just a black speck with what looks like something had exploded there. So, um, unfortunately, I mean, it sucks. I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but it's kind of comical just to see this little it's like, okay, here was Mars before. We come back around, and now there's just, like looks like a cigarette burn on the surface. Well, okay, so it's back to the drawing board. Now, it's not, it, it, it's not uh, game over for the ExoMars missions. Um, in fact, there's going to be a second launch uh, after this, you know, and, and, and this is to, you know, the whole thing with the ExoMars mission and, and these, these trials is to test out different ways that we would land on Mars because the 
you know, as things progress, we eventually do want to send humans there. So we need to figure out a good way to send them. Um, but, uh, clearly this one did not work. So, uh, they will gather more information, you know, they'll be able to get as much information as they can. And by doing, they'll be able to make the next attempt even better. So hopefully they'll gather as much data as they can and improve the landing procedure as we go on. Um, you know, one of the unfortunate things is missions like these are so expensive to carry out in the first place. So, um, I think, more people attempting it and more people trying to land on Mars, the better we are. Um, uh, another good hope for the future here is with uh, SpaceX, who's going to be making multiple attempts with their Dragon capsule to land on Mars. So um, we've got a lot of tries coming up here for figuring out how to land on Mars. I mean, we've already had a, a few successful ones. A lot of them included sending things there in giant inflatables and then bouncing them on the surface. Um, those are some of the plans. Um, obviously, that's not going to work very well for humans, even with uh, uh, decreased gravity. But uh, <laughs> um, I don't think a bounce landing is what we're looking for for humans on Mars. Uh, I would say um, some kind of booster landing is the way to go. A sky crane? Hey, I'm always down for a sky crane. It seemed to work well for the uh, Curiosity rover, which was uh, very heavy. Uh, not a light rover by any means. Uh, that thing is pretty massive. Um, so we'll see what happens in the future here. And it's just, uh, you know, uh, congratulations to the European Space Agency for the Trace Gas Orbiter successfully being put in orbit. And because uh, that's going to be huge for their mission going forward. So, you know, the mission is not dead. Um, they are just um, going to have to figure out what to take from what happened with the Shirapelli lander on this first try. Uh, take as much as they can out of it and learn and do better the second time. So uh, in honesty, it's a, su a successful mission with uh, just a, a little, a little uh, tick mark. That's it. Um, so congratulations to the whole team. And uh, that, that about covers it for this week, everybody. I hope you uh, enjoyed this week's episode. And as always... Spread love, spread science, and have a great week. You know, go out there, do what you love, and love what you do. All right, folks? Uh, I will see you next week for Halloween, and we will have another episode for you. All right? See you later.